0: Dr. Susan Sample has dedicated her career to creating spaces for narrative and medicine. She has a Ph.D. in Communication and directs the Initiative in Narrative Medicine and Writing at the Center for Health Ethics, Arts, and Humanities at the University of Utah Health Sciences. She is also Assistant Professor in the Department of Internal Medicine and Writer-in-Residence at the Huntsman Cancer Institute. In this episode, we talk about what narrative is, how it fosters self-knowledge, and the value of hearing stories as well as writing your own. She also shares her journey into narrative medicine and affirms, as stated by Dr. Rita Sharon, that self-knowledge is the physician's most potent therapeutic instrument. Hey, Dr. Susan Sample, I'm so glad you're here and that we can talk today for the Real MD Podcast. Just to start off, if you could introduce yourself and talk about the work you do and kind of your role within the medical school.
1: I'm a faculty member in the Department of Internal Medicine, and um, in that capacity, um, I also am a core faculty in the Center for Health, Ethics, Arts, and Humanities, And that used to be, we are kind of, uh, it's a new center spanning all of the health sciences. Previously, we were the program in the division of medical ethics and humanities. Um, And at the center, I have started something new this year called the Initiative in Narrative Medicine and Health. And I'm directing that. And one of the reasons for that is that over the time I've been here, there is increasing interest in narrative. Um, how that applies to medicine, how it applies to health, um, how it can be a a tool for um, medical students, residents, physicians, and patients. Um, And I also do patient work, and that kind of sets me aside in a different way, that PhD who who works at the bedside. So I'm the writer-in-residence at Huntsman Cancer Institute. And I do, I work with patients, um, family members, caregivers, theirs, as well as faculty and staff. Um, lots of writing workshops and working one-on-one with patients and often with patients who are hospitalized too.
0: Such a unique role and kind of a span of uh, opportunities to engage different groups. And you obviously you work with our students and you're working Uh, with patients, which uh, that's uh, just exciting, and staff and and different groups. What is narrative medicine?
1: Narrative medicine, as a phrase, just narrative medicine, um, is well known, increasingly well known to people since the early 2000s, when Rita Sharon, who is an internist at Columbia, got very interested in narrative, and she kind of developed a unique type of use of narrative in medicine that she calls narrative medicine, and that's where you use narrative, which are stories, and the complement, which is reflective writing, as a clinical tool. But narrative has actually been um, um, identified as an essential, um, maybe even a fundamental structure of medical narrative since probably the 1980s. Mm -hmm. That there were some of the first medical humanities um, scholarship was done um, by oftentimes literature professors who would go into medical schools and um, kind of embed themselves and look at all the different kinds of reading and writing and discourses that were used in medicine. One of the first ones was a literature scholar, um, Catherine Montgomery Hunter, and the title of her book was Doctor Stories. the the narrative structure of medical knowledge. And she, of course, we think of the patient history, right? That's Mm -hmm. that's a story. That's a narrative. And we We assume
0: uh, that that exists. We we know about that, right? Yes, yes.
1: And what's interesting, though, too, is when you think about it, that medical students and physicians take a patient history. Mm -hmm. So what happens? You take that patient story. And it becomes trans, that it's translated into medicalese, medical language, it's pathologized. And it needs to be. In order to come up with some kind of a diagnosis, a treatment, a prognosis, you know that that's patients want that and need that. But increasingly, people started looking at the different ways that narrative were used. That's just one example there too. Um, but saying that that um, we need to understand more about that—that that what is happening to the patient when um, when. The history is taken that way. What happens to you as the um, physician or the medical student when you take that? Um, Can you remain the individual, the, the professional that you are? because I think there's so many um, narratives, there's so many situations in medicine um, where those those sharp lines between personal and professional are blurred. Mm -hmm. For instance, right now, I'm teaching um, an elective in the medical school um, and it's called Radical Listening at the End of Life. And we're focusing on um, dying and death and narratives um, associated with these and trying to see how can we better listen to these? And so that, especially when physicians, medical students are sharing narratives, and they may not even think about it, just stories that they had that they just can't let go of, um, about witnessing the death of a patient. It's because the end of life is one of those is one of those situations where it's very difficult to remain that detached prof- professional, because. Mm-hmm. You can't help but identify with with a patient at some point in your life. Everybody will identify with a patient as a fellow human being. And their story suddenly starts becoming your story.
0: How did your career unfold into this path of being involved in narrative?
1: It goes back to my undergraduate days. I was a philosophy major mm-hmm. and, um, I, and I was very interested, always been interested in, um, um, theories of selfhood and, um, and our identity and, how we relate to others and how we relate to the world. And and phenomenology was kind of a good fit there. And so I was very interested in that. Um, And those are where you ask some of those bigger bigger questions. Um, At the same time, uh, I've always um, loved to write. And so if you wanted to be a writer, um, that the advice uh, many years ago was be a reporter. And Mm -hmm. when you graduate with a degree in philosophy, you know, there aren't a lot of openings. So, (laughs) but I fortunately was able to um, get on as a reporter at a small daily newspaper in northern um, Idaho, where the University of Idaho is located. And um, so I was the education reporter. And because it was a university town, I got, I was able to cover um, uh, the State Board of Education, the State Board of Regents. And so that um, I learned to write much more succinctly, which was, which was wonderful. Um, but I'd say my strength was actually as a feature writer. And what I learned in, um, uh, in working uh, on a newspaper, which is something that I think it's too bad we can't do a little bit more of this with medical students, I learned to interview people.
0: Mm.
1: I learned to interview people to ask those open-ended questions and then follow them and see where their stories would take them. So I decided to get my um, uh, a master's in fine arts and creative writing. And when I finished that, I actually had a job lined up here at the University of Utah in what was then known as the University Writing Program. And I would be teaching composition and introductory Mm -hmm. writing. But I also heard about an opening for a magazine editor for what was called the Health Sciences Report magazine. And um, That sounded pretty interesting. I do not have a science background, Mm -hmm. but I was kind of fascinated with this. And so I thought, well, that sounds like something kind of fun. So I ended up taking that. It was this clinical introduction to the world of medicine and the the culture of medicine and health. And uh, in that role, I had access to everybody. So I got to meet Um, administrators, faculty, research patients um, in um, all of the health sciences, the School of Medicine, the hospital, but also nursing pharmacy and health. Um, And it was a fascinating experience. I learned so much. And the kind of the the high point, I um, got to interview Mario Capecchi. And it was in 1997. And um, I had talked to him and different people in genetics, but someone said, you really should interview him and ask him about his life. Well, he had an amazing life. And as I started interviewing him, we met a number of times. It was like, this is the most amazing story I will ever write about in this way. Mm -hmm. And um, some of your listeners know, maybe some don't know, but uh, Mario Capecchi had an unbelievable childhood that during World War II, his mother had been very, he was um, living in Italy. His mother was American. She had been very active and I uh, had to uh, leave. And so she left him with some people that she knew. He ended up leaving there. Um, I think they ran out of money, as I recall. And he was homeless on the streets of Italy for years um, and survived along with a gang of other boys on the streets. Eventually, he ended up in a hospital. And when the war ended, amazingly, his mother found him. And they returned to the United States. And he uh, moved in with his aunt and uncle, who were Quakers. And uh, he had to learn English and went to school, and then went, went on and had a career that most of us know. And um, it was just an amazing story. Uh, and I was the first one he had actually told it to, and um, so we were able to publish that. Ten years later, he won the Nobel Prize for gene targeting. And of course, the science you know, is the prize, but everyone was so interested in his story as well. So at the same time that was going on. I had uh, I am a creative writer, and I eventually switched over to poetry um, because poetry gave me a chance to ask some of those bigger questions that I was interested in. And I was given a chance by the Utah Arts Council to work uh, with, to offer poetry workshops to teenagers, marginalized teenagers outside traditional school settings. Mm-hmm. So I immediately thought of teenage patients, patients, adolescent patients. And I remember a good friend of mine who at the time was the renal um, social worker, pediatric social worker. And she said how when they were building Huntsman Cancer Institute um, and this big, beautiful building that these kids who were on dialysis in the basement of a building that was torn down for the rehab building, it was the old Dumpkey building. And they wrote a letter to Mr. Huntsman saying, we'd really like a building, too. So my friend helped me set this up and I offered poetry workshops to teenagers who'd survived kidney as well as heart um, and liver transplants and I ended up doing that for about 10 years or so oh, wow. and so the combination there and and at the time through that I then started working for medical ethics and humanities at the medical school um, uh, through the working with the physicians literature and medicine program and then eventually offering um, the reflective writing class for medical students. And I kept thinking about the reasons why these teenagers were writing, um, why medical students were interested in writing and thinking about physicians. And I thought, they're writing for very different reasons that that those in creative writing programs and fine arts are are writing, very different Mm -hmm. from what I had um, been kind of schooled in. And so that's what I wanted to know more about that.
0: What are the reasons, do you think, as you've explored that?
1: I think it's because um, for patients, when they get a diagnosis for a serious illness, especially a chronic or a terminal illness, that suddenly their life is not what they expected it to be, that... Before, everything in their life, they had the story of their life, all those events that had happened. And they could say, yes, this is the story of my life. But suddenly, they're at a point where the story is reached someplace that they never imagined. Mm. That, you know, we don't think about this. Yes, I'll go to school, I'll get by my bachelor's degree, I'll go to med school, um, I'll finish my residency, I'll start a clinical practice in you know maybe at age 50 if I have to get cancer that would be a good time to get it you know we can't plan those kinds of things but when it happens it just it's this major interruption in our life it's a major interruption in our life story in our own personal narrative And then there's also, as I mentioned, Rita Sharon has what she calls narrative medicine as a clinical tool. And this is where um, medical students, um, physicians, um, practitioners of all sorts um, learn to listen for their patients' stories as stories, to Mm. listen who are the characters, what's the plot. What is the what's the patient saying here, and and what's being left out? That's always really important too, and then from that, that the physician will be able to better better uh, provide a diagnosis, but also de- more likely develop a more compassionate and empathetic relationship with a patient, which will then is more likely to encourage patient compliance as well. So there's a a very um, uh, tangible benefit to it.
0: When you were even describing what a patient experiences, it started to have me think a little bit just about what a medical student experiences. They think their life is going to play out a certain way. I'm accepted into medical school. I've done all the pre-med stuff. And then I get into medical school. And pretty much as you start medical school, it starts deviating from the concept that they maybe thought it was going to be and so when you describe the benefits of narrative i also think immediately yes these future physicians will serve patients both in their training and as they as they um, specialize in everything but also there's a real need for processing what's happening on that journey of becoming a medical student have you found in your interactions with medical students and when you sort of introduce narrative, have you seen them start to process that, their own path and their own self-discovery?
1: Yes, I have. And here's an example from um, many, many years ago. It was in the um, reflective writing class that that, um, I teach. And um, there was a student who uh, would always arrive late, and always slide in the class and always apologize. You know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm late. Um, and But he was such a kind person and it was just kind of funny. And and when I would think of him, I would always kind of look at, he had these very um, kind of horn-rimmed glasses and they, they, they were just so noticeable against his face because it was a young kind of face and he had those glasses. Um, and I was kind of intrigued. And one of the assignments that um, I give, a writing prompt, uh, is that I have students um, imagine, and I know at different times there really is a lost and found box in the medical student lounge, but I said, <laughs> okay, so imagine that now you're a fourth year, and uh, which most of them are, you're getting ready to graduate, and you go in there. What do you find in the lost and found box? And It's always, you know, there are so many things, but this student, what this student ended up writing about was his mother's death. So during his second year, I think maybe towards the end of the second year, his mother had died out of state and clerkships began and he never had a chance to really process, to think about that. But with that, but with that writing prompt and with the writing that he then um, produced out of that, he was able to start thinking about this and the meaning of it and realized how important it was for him personally to think about this. And, and, um, and as you said, process this. Um, and I think about this, that medical students, when they are physicians, but even when they're on the, um, uh, on the floors now, and they're the ones who have the time to go sit with a patient that they have sometimes one of the most intimate relationships with a patient. That when you examine a patient, you're literally, you, you are looking at them naked. They, they bear themselves. But sometimes when, when patients are so fearful and anxious and unsure of what is happening, they also bear themselves emotionally and psychologically, existentially. And I think it is so hard especially for medical students who are still young. They haven't had um, 20 years of life experiences that they can draw on to help meet this patient. And I think sometimes that if, if they could, and this isn't for every personality, but for, but for many students, a chance to think more about some of these bigger questions, then they might feel more comfortable and better prepared um, uh, to really engage with patients on the level that is satisfying for them as a student and um, uh, and compassionate for the patient as well.
0: Yeah, you described in your session with students a few months ago, you, you said that it's almost like we don't realize that they themselves, this, this future physician, is an instrument in and of themselves. Of course, they have a stethoscope. Of course, they have actual tools that help them perform their job, but the, they are uh, also an instrument. What do you mean by that?
1: Yes, yes. And I have to say, I have to attribute that to Rita Sharon. Okay. He is the one who had said, the physician's most important instrument will be yourself. Yes. Because you can take all of these diagnostic tests, you can take the patient history, what they're going to tell you, but you need to put all these together and in a way that is going to be remembering that it's, it's, it's going to be so complex because you're going to take, you have to, to keep in mind all of the pathologies, the working of the body and, and, and the physical body, but at the same time, honoring that person as a human being, too. I think that if you think of yourself, then, um, and that you are, in a sense, kind of an instrument, you can help bridge that. That
0: resonates with me as well. But I feel (laughs) that that's a very humanist statement, that yes, there's all of these complexities around uh, the the specialized physician that they would do that they would know to perform their medical process, but there's also this other element of of being a human and showing up in that in that humanist way that informs and and supports that medical intervention too. And I, I think that that's just a fascinating space to be in. And what it also makes me think about just to sort of tie this together with your previous comments is that we must have an inward processing that, that we're dedicated to, almost a, a way of sort of engaging that inward journey and that inward processing in order to better serve, you know, as a physician you yeah. know, or, or as, a, as a person who works in, with the medical community. I just think that there's such a need we don't talk about that inward processing enough. I don't think we, I think it's almost like we don't think we have time for that inward process. There's too much external that I must acquire. There's too much demanding me. And, and the system does demand so much. And I, I don't want to brush over that. It does demand so much, but I can't imagine that instrument of, uh, you know, that, that developing that person as an instrument being without that inward process
1: i'm thinking of something that in the class on radical listening that um students were writing about experiences with with death and several of them said that what was so hard was to either know or to um not to watch because it wouldn't be but to that when people die alone that's what is what was so poignant and, and actually kind of fearful for some for some students. So they said, "I don't want to die alone. And um, And I think COVID has really um, brought this to the foreground of how many people had to die alone and how lonely that is. And I think it's not only that we look at the patients and think that is, so sad to die alone without anybody around you, without your family, Um, because we imagine ourselves there then too. And Mm -hmm. I think when we say that, and um, uh, that we are alone too. And I think that if you can have a sense of yourself that it doesn't prevent the loneliness, but maybe buffers it, helps you deal with it maybe just a little bit better because I don't think any of us want to be totally alone
0: right
1: I think about um, that uh in phenomenology and just that that we are as ourself we're a being in ourself um being in that way but then we're also being with others and being for others and then we're also a being in the world mm-hmm. so we relate to others and we relate to ourself, but this is all happening simultaneously, right.
0: right? Very complex, yes. Yes,
1: yes, very complex, and and it is challenging. I think for the medical students, they have so much to learn, that's crammed into those four years, and so how do you find some of the the time for that?
0: Yeah, and I also think, you know, I'm as I feel anxieties about things that are happening, my mind is already working on that, and I'm either Leaning into it in a way that allows me to sort of take it in and process it, or I'm avoiding it and having it sort of play over and over as I'm doing other things. And so maybe this is an oversimplification, but in my mind, it feels like, you know, if I could lean into this a little bit more and tease it out in a narrative format. um, I'm already using energy on it, can I just can I just do a little more to process it then maybe I've allowed myself, you know? And, and I sometimes start to think of it in that way. How do you suggest that a medical student or someone who is thinking, you know, this narrative thing sounds interesting, how can I get started in that? I think um, we all need
1: to think about the narrative, the reflective writing, um, our self narratives, as drafts, as notes, because uh, I think that that medical students, they are ambitious, they're competitive, they're often perfectionists. And uh, so it's like, oh, that doesn't sound good. I'm not gonna do, you know? So I just, I I always wanna stress that, you know, just think of these as drafts. They're all, you know, in process Um, and you can always work and revise something, but if you get it outside of you, then you have that ability to see it, to revise it, to re-envision it. But anyway, some of the the actual techniques kind of for short writings is that um, I said, what about a phrase a day? And you could do it on your phone. You could just send yourself um, a message on a phone. You can do it on a calendar. Um, Just a phrase, some word that comes to you during the day, you could do it at the end of the day. And just just that that much. Um, I also said you can buy Five year calendars. And um, they're they're small and they have for each date, they have spaces for five different years, Hmm. but they're very small. They only have like three lines. And um, I said that way you could do that phrase for a day, just just something you jot down. And then If it's a five-year calendar and you're in med school for four years, then by the time you come to the fourth year, you know, you're going to have a record and a journaling.
0: I have loved this conversation so much. And and I I have one other question, and that is, what do you hope all this narrative work does?
1: I hope that for medical students, residents, and physicians um, who try reflective writing, that they find that it enriches their life. For patients, I'm hoping that it gives them hope.
0: This episode of The Real MD Podcast is produced by Raquel Rodriguez and me, Tom Hurtado. Raquel Rodriguez also mixed the episode. Special thanks to Scott Singpil, Scope Radio, and University of Utah Health. The Real MD Podcast is part of The Real MD Program at the Spencer Fox Eccles School of Medicine at the University of Utah. This program helps medical students find meaning, community, and purpose during their training and future careers. Our theme song, Energizer Bunny, is by my son's band, Hurtado. You can find our podcast on major platforms. Thanks for listening.